I'm Laj. I'm Kohana. And, and this, this is Boiled Over. Welcome back to another episode of Boiled Over. We're finally back with another interview. Thank you all so much for your patience. These take a minute to come together, but we're super excited for this episode because Lige and I got the chance to sit down with an animator we've admired for years, Serena Nihe. Serena's short film Rabbit's Blood is one of my favorite films of all time, in addition to being one of the reasons why I originally fell in love with hand-drawn animation in the first place. Serena, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you make? Okay, uh, my name is Serena Nihe. I'm an animation director from Japan, um, currently living in Hakushima in the northeast of Japan. Mm-hmm. And I uh, specialize in hand-drawn animation uh, using kind of uh, black pen and acrylic paints. And yeah, my style is often seen as kind of weird and strange and surreal and heavily uh, Estonian-influenced animation. I think, yeah, we're both huge fans of your style. Like, it's very unique to, you know, your work and the kind of work you make, um, which, you know, drew both of us to to your work in the first place. But um, I guess to start, we were wondering how you go about creating your films in the first place. Like, do the visuals come first? Do the stories come first and then follow the visuals? Um, how does that process work? And how do you go about creating visuals to begin with? Right. I, I draw and write lots of words at the same time. And when I uh, started making uh, a whole, like one story, it's, it's also, um, it's, it's always like, starting from the big themes uh, like despair, absurdity in the society. And those themes are always the same or like similar uh, whenever I make a, I make a story. And, but sometimes looking at the old drawings, which kind of helps to develop the story. And so, yeah, both uh, writing and uh, drawing at the same time. That sounds a little bit like um, <clears throat> how Jamie, <laughs> how um, Jamie Wolf, if you're familiar with her work, um, goes about with her process too. Um, we very recently interviewed her, but she just says like drawings on her wall, like we'll do little bits and pieces of things every day. And then like we'll piece together whatever her next project is just by like looking at this like giant sort of sprawling wall of ideas. But I think in similar ways, just like starting with a big net and casting wide and then sort of choosing from that sounds like a similar, very effective strategy that, that the two of you share, which I think is kind of interesting. When you revisit these old drawings, like where where are they? Do you have like any sort of like file system for them? Or do you just kind of go back through old notebooks and see you know, the drawings that you were drawing a while ago, or what does that look like as well? It's it's always like I use the same uh, kind of 
um, sketchbook like this, mm -hmm. and um, which is oh, uh, that's large. Uh, yeah, kind of uh, a a four. Mm -hmm. uh, right. No, more more than a four size uh, sketchbooks, and and yeah, I I draw the characters and um, yeah, write down the words and gradually building up the story. Very handy archive. I I know that I hesitate to speak for Lige, but I also feel like this is true for both of us, but just that we both found ourselves spending long stretches of time just feeling totally enchanted by your animations and at least in, in my case, just like technically trying to figure out how you achieve particular techniques and I'm just right there in the same boat. <laughs> We're all here. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could speak about your technical approach to your hand-drawn animations and your, your hand-drawn work. Um, would you mind like breaking down for us your workflow um, and how you go about like compositing all of your hand-drawn assets for us? Yes, so I do hand-drawn animation. So when I decided the when I know what kind of story is going to be like, uh, what what's happening in the story, I start storyboarding, and after storyboarding, I start animating um, on paper by by pencil, and and then if I have kind of uh, the line test set up, um, I, I use Dragon Frame and then move, uh, check the movements. Um, by you know shooting the those drawings, but I don't have it. So now I scan them all um, to check the movements, and then after that I start uh, redraw uh, redraw the the by pen, and then after that I start painting by acrylic, and then scan them all and. And finally, uh, compositing in Photoshop and cleaning up as well, and editing in in Premiere. And so, even your tests, like everything, is done physically before moving over to digitally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. And so, what does that look like from going, you know, from the pencil test to inking? Do you ink right on over the pencil, or are you working with like different paper and framing methods for that? Or how does that look like? Right. Um, I used, uh, I use kind of cheap paper uh, to, to uh, check the movements. Um, so, so that it doesn't um, affect the, the pencil line wouldn't affect the actual papers, um, you know, texture. And yeah, it's a kind of, really waste of paper, but I, I do it that way. You have to, do, I don't know. I'm, I'm the same though, for your final, like for your cleanup, do you like working with like a particular paper? Does it lend itself to the material in like particular yeah. ways? Yeah, I, I, I've been using the same paper from, from um, when I was at the RCA and making a film, um, which is kind of like, thicker and kind of uh, beige um, mm -hmm. in terms of 
a color and it, 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 it's a really nice texture and it, it wouldn't when, when I paint mm -hmm. um, by acrylic. So yeah, I use a paper when, when I animate the final. Is it that paper from, um, from Lightfoot? Like the, the, the 500 sheets? A paper is a is a kind of uh, really normal <laughs> normal drawing paper, but uh, it, it's it's just thicker. And mm -hmm. I I I always buy the A3 size paper, and oh I cut, them, um, I cut them as a uh, I divide into two, so mm -hmm. so that I can draw like A4 size. So and then I punch them. Oh, I see. Okay. So you have your own sort of home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Set up. Is it just a like, like a round hole situation? Do you have like? It's a. It's a I'm just curious. <laughs> it's a oh. Oh wow. Okay. I've seen. I've seen these. <laughs> Are they? Do they use the um the plastic like round hole peg bars? Is that what they work with? Best. Oh, pick bar is uh my pick bar is. This is so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really heavy one. Um, it's a. Oh, okay. It it looks like a silver. I'm not sure. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's quite heavy. Quite, like, yeah, yeah, it's quite um reliable. Nothing's mm -hmm. moving around on that thing. Um, so I'm curious. You know, you're working in such a physical medium doing, you know, your tests physically as well, cutting the paper and punching the holes yourself. Um, what's it like working both so physically, but also having to composite and work in Photoshop and assemble your film digitally? Um, like, do you ever touch up frames in Photoshop or is that really just for compositing? Mm, right. Um, I, I love, first of all, I love like physical process um in making um making an animation and uh so digital process is uh even though it's digital um i'm you know like premiere both um uh, in photoshop and in premiere i'm controlling what i uh did physically um yeah it's it's connecting um, each other so but yeah editing in in premiere for example is uh is the most fun thing <laughs> because yeah you want to finish it but yeah it's a physical physicality uh, in animation is um it's one of the most important things for me because just it's just therapeutic so yeah do you always uh keep your frames after working on animation like do you keep the individual drawings as well or i have all the all the frames um in in my closet <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i i i've got nothing to do with it with them but um i can't i can't throw them away and, no uh... <laughs> It's just a nice reward at the like when you're coming to the end of it to just like be around the stacks. Yeah. So I, I understand like you know the, it's a sentimental thing, um, mm -hmm. but I'm really glad we're talking about the the tactility of a lot of your work because that is what 
um, I feel like people people recognize your work as you know it's like your your use of paints and inks and um, beyond even just the materials it's like the hurried mm -hmm. movements of the characters and the ways that they're designed that have become extremely recognizable features of, of your films and I'm just curious about where where the inclination towards hand-drawn animation came from like if you would come from like an illustration background or if you you would like painted a lot prior to animating or there are specific influences in your life that sort of led you to gravitate towards these particular mediums. I, I started animation when I was uh, studying graphic design in, mm. in uni and it was an animation class which was mandatory and and then we were encouraged to do hand-drawn animation so since then I, I found a kind of joy in hand-drawn animation and and also I loved um, kind of hand-drawn style um, illustrations like um, I'm a big fan of um, Tommy Ungelo's work. He, he is a French and German kind of Alsace-born um, um, graphic designer and illustrator. Um, but uh, his style is um, is uh, mostly hand-drawn and and also yeah I, I really loved like hand-drawn animation um, by uh, kind of independent artists uh, at the time when I was in uni I found uh, lots of um, kind of independent animators were kind of coming up uh, in, in in Japan and their styles are really like original and totally different from what the standard animation is. And that's why I kind of decided to do a hand-drawn style. So just, I know you briefly touched on the fact that you studied graphic design in school, but I'm curious if that background at all plays over into your animation practice. Um, and, you know, if this personal history you have in design has influenced the way in which you animate at all. Yeah, I, yeah, I studied graphic design, but um, I, I think what I learned um, from that course was kind of how to like, how to, the way, uh, of achieving what you want to achieve, like really fundamental um, things uh, in terms of like creation. And there, that was a really intense, busy course. And we had to do like lots of um, things like photography, illustrations, um, I don't know, poster design and yeah, animation, um, of course. And then so yeah, I I learned like how to achieve what I want to pursue. So yeah, it 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 definitely helped me. It sounds kind of a lot like um what Lige and I had to do because we also we graduated from the same illustration program um, in New York at Parsons, um, but both with animation films. We're just finding our way in these in majors that aren't designed for animation necessarily, but um, you know, you it's helpful in its own own interesting way. Um, 
I'm wondering if we can talk a little more specifically about some some of your short film work. Um, it's all so fascinating, but I think um, one of the things for me that I, you know, I identify in terms of like a mood throughout a lot of your films is that the worlds are always like haunting, and very surreal, and tend to play with like quite graphic imagery and the occult, like in Rabbit's Blood and in Polka Dot Boy, which was at Glass this year, and I was very excited to see. Um, but I think what's especially engaging about the way that you as an animator deal with these themes is the way in which the characters are so simply defined and quite pared down. And, you know, often like, like they rarely emote, but they endure these very painful, very strange situations. And I'm just wondering what, what draws you towards creating stories that feel this way and touch on these themes of the unnatural and the surreal. I think um, part of the reasons it be for, because of my personality, I, I don't like, I used to be like hold back, holding back and and I I couldn't really show my emotions in front of people and always like um, guessing like what people are feeling. And, you know, you're, even if you are sad or like devastated, um, it won't be understood um, if you don't show. And, but it's, it's more effective if you don't show uh, when it comes to animation, if you don't show their face expressions, um, it's when when the character is sad or want to cry. I I think it's effect more effective if you you don't use that like um, you know face ex expression. And also, I just don't like the characters that are emotional. <laughs> So yeah, I, I think it's a lot easier in animation to just say, yeah, you know, here's a character we want to see them as sad, so we'll make them look like they're crying. But it's so much more difficult um, to have the nuance in there of, as a viewer, knowing that that character is sad without having that facial expression there. And I think you're absolutely right. Like it is so much more effective when, as a viewer, we can see and feel that emotion without having to have these very distinct visual cues of facial expression in the characters. Um, I'm um, wondering if we can talk, you, you mentioned the Estonian influence on your films a couple of times. Um, and I definitely, you know, I feel its presence in a lot of like, often in like the mood of your films and I can, in, in like just generally your, in your body of work. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious as like a Japanese animator, do you feel like you, you derive inspiration from Japanese animation at all or differently? Um, I'm just wondering if you could speak to your feelings about being a Japanese animator and making work that feels decisively different from the mainstream sort of image of Japanese animation. Um, I, I love and adore like the steady stream of like independent Japanese animators that are making really beautiful work um, and have been for decades. But in my own case, um, 
as a Japanese animator also, I'm, you know, thinking through what this means all the time. And especially when, you know, the work you create doesn't necessarily meet this, this wider idea of what Japanese animation has means to people or has become. Yeah, I, first of all, I, I've never, I've never felt like I belong to Japan. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't really, I love being in Japan at some point, but I don't really like, um, yeah, I don't really fit. But at the same time, I, I grew up um, watching Japanese animations, of course. So like Studio Ghibli and um, lots of other animations. So definitely I was influenced by Japanese animations, but when it comes to my creation, it's, um, that's not what I want to make. So like uh, unconsciously, I, part of my film is, is influenced by Japanese animations, like how to move or like what, how to cut the scenes and stuff. But I think consciously I loved Estonian animation. So trying to, I was trying to follow another way, not the standard. No, I think that's, um... That's important, I definitely, I feel. I think I, the first time I came across, across your films is before I had even really, really studied anything about animation and I was just sort of an illustrator. And, you know, drift of like that, the history and what you're responding to and influenced by, just as films alone, they're like the, the moods that they carry and the sort of the heft of everything that you deal with is gorgeous, just in its own, in its own way really liked that answer as a Japanese animator who also feels like they don't quite quite fit. Um, yeah, I, I also saw your films before I became an animator as well. Um, and one thing that really stuck out to me, like I have this very vivid memory of seeing Rabbit's Blood for the first time um, and you know, seeing your films before I had really even tried animating for myself. And I remember just being completely awestruck with what you were able to achieve with the realm of animation because it felt so cinematic for lack of a better word and it felt almost like I was watching someone with a camera in this world um, you know take actual shots with the camera and you know move the camera around and everything you're able to do with the framing of these shots and the camera movements uh, just feels so purposeful like not just in place of the animation as a whole but really like to the entire feeling of the film cin cinematically and I'm just curious maybe on the technical side of things maybe more theoretically um, how you go about creating these scenes and framing that shot to achieve these incredibly cinematic effects with uh, again like the camera framing and the camera movements Right. Oh, thanks for your kind words. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a. Um, I just, it's a. I'm just depicting what I imagined in my brain. So it's a. Like how 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 the camera moves, is a uh, is I decide when I'm 
storyboarding. So before before storyboarding, I decide what the whole story is going to be, and at that point, like those images are like perfect in my brain, and it's so difficult to to reproduce on paper uh, or I don't know. Um, just draw what I want to like, what I want to draw in my what what I uh, what I imagined, but yeah, it's just it's just happening in my brain. <laughs> so yeah. But so you're storyboarding these movements before you're even like actually seeing them visually, and so what does um, that storyboarding process look like for camera movements, for example, like these very fast camera movements or like very fast motions. What do those look like in your storyboarding process as still images? Um, it's really chaotic. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just uh, when camera has to move first, I just draw, uh, like write camera moves first and then, and then um, this, this scene has to be slow motion and then just write down and, but yeah, it's just feeling, <laughs> yeah. Do you create um, animatics from your storyboards or do you usually just go straight from storyboard to the film itself? Uh, no, I don't do animatic. It's, it's just, yeah, it's not for me. <laughs> But, yeah, if it's not like uh, mandatory, like um, for for commissioned work or something, uh, I don't. I would never ever do animatic. I'm the same way, and I had teachers yell at me in school for <laughs> not doing animatics. <laughs> but I would always say, "This feels like a waste of time. I've already done the storyboard. I'm ready to start animating." And they would say, "No, no, yeah. time. You, you yeah. have to do the animatic." Just like just take the thumbnails and time. I'm the opposite. I can't. I really don't like storyboarding. Like I, I don't. It's strange. Like my, I just I can't work in that way. So I go straight to animatic. But sometimes get told off for doing that too. But it's all just you know whatever whatever works best for for your process ultimately, right? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if we can maybe pivot a little bit to just talking about um. What sorts of things generally influence your work? Um, maybe even like outside of animation, like anything you do in like your, your own everyday life or um, things you see out in the world, other art forms, um, what inspires you in your practice? Right. I, I, don't, I don't really watch animation. So I mainly I watch uh, like films, like uh, I, I love Cronenberg's films and Haneke's, uh, Michael Haneke's films and lots of, I used to watch lots of horror films um, from 60s, 70s, 80s. And there are so many like wonderful films in horror genre. So yeah, but um, Yes, recently I mostly watch um, American TV series, mm -hmm. <laughs> HBO's. Um, early this year, I watched um, Succession. 
which was so great. Oh, wow. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I've heard, heard good things. Yeah. Um, yeah, first season and second season were so amazing. And, and also, um, but I don't, I don't really, oh, but I read some books. I, I read uh, the same books over and over again and like more than 10 times. And um, one of my favorite uh, novelists, um, you know, Ryunosuke uh, Akutagawa, um, he, he, he's a really like one of the best um, authors in, in Japan and he, he committed a suicide at, but um, his work is so dark and really like full of satire and really sad <laughs> to read and it, you kind of feel like really depressed after reading it, but I can't stop like reading it. Yeah, over it's and over again. And yeah, it, it, yeah, it really inspires me and those um, books and dark books and like the darkness in human beings. And I'm really interested in those things. Do you have any personal favorite horror movies? Uh, it's it's hard to say. It's <laughs> but, um, definitely Evil Dead. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm a huge horror movie fan as well. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, Cronenberg's um, like Ali Cronenberg's films were really amazing. Um. This is a little unrelated, but I'm curious um, because, you know, the, the first of your films um, that I got to see in like a festival circuit was in Glass, like just over this last year online. Um, but I know that your your films are so, so highly like accoladed and, um, you know, just make, they're all stars across the circuits whenever um, a new one is put out. But I'm just wondering what, the process of both submitting and screening your work at various festivals um, has felt like, especially, you know, before COVID when you're, you're able to like move a little more freely and actually, you know, see, see your film on like a large screen with an audience. Um, I, before Polka Dot Boy, my latest short film, I was, um, I was submit, submitting my films uh, by myself and uh, yeah like um, looking for the deadlines of, of the festivals and which was not like not not a big deal um, but I I had a contract with um, with uh, Miu production a French production company so from last year um, I I didn't, I didn't have to submit my film by myself, which is great. I didn't realize that before, but yeah. And then, but it's, it's always like uh, before um, making the contract with me production, it was, um, it was always um, great to have the news um, 
from the festivals by email um, to like, you know, uh, to be selected and yeah, to be invited uh, to the festivals and uh, yeah, of course, and it, it it depends on the the schedule, but um, whenever I could, I went to the festival, and it's it it feels so great uh, to watch the watch my film with with like really inspirational like beautiful films and um, on the big screen. So I really miss that now, but. Yeah, hopefully in, in, I don't know, several years, I want to come back to the festival. We're just, looking forward to when you do. Sorry, oh, I didn't mean course. to interrupt oh, you. No. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, just on the topic of showing your work and sharing your work, it was such an absolute joy getting to see you speak at Pictoplasma um, and see some of your work there. Um, and I'm just curious, um, you know, especially because your work is so surreal and feels so mysterious <laughs> sometimes, um, I'm interested to hear how you feel about speaking about your work. Um, I feel like a lot of animators, like, and at least in my personal practice, will create a film and share it for everyone to see, and they can interpret it however they want. Um, but actually talking about your work and you know doing a Q&A after a screening or something like that I'm curious if that changes at all how you see the film through your eyes or enjoy getting to dive a little bit deeper behind the scenes or what is that whole process like as well right um Pictoplasma was um is one of my favorite festivals so it was I was so honored to to be able to speak at the festival. Um, but I don't normally like talking about my work and it's, I I think at some point, I, I believed at some point it ruins like my work itself. But actually I, when I was studying and um, graphic design and uh, animation at the RCA, I was always like looking for someone's interviews, like um, the the people I respect um, on YouTube. So I want to know the behind the scenes, um, the stories behind the scenes. So yeah, it, it makes sense if I like, if someone wants to know like my like that my work's background stories it it's um yeah i i think now i think it's uh i want to share a bit more <laughs> than before i'm really excited to hear that and i i think Lige and i just in building this whole project together Part of the reason why I think, you know, we're doing this is because we do that all the time for animators that we really love and admire and to get to have this, you know, all of these interviews sort of consolidated in one place where we're able to learn more about the, 
the people behind the work um, is so rewarding for us and hopefully for, for people listening too. Um, but that, that means a lot to hear. Um, and we're so grateful that you're sharing with us today. <laughs> yeah, really. It means a lot. I, I'm wondering if your artistic practice um, exists anywhere outside of the world of animation. Um, like, are there any other sort of artistic mediums you, you still enjoy, like working and playing with, um, maybe like non-visual ones, or is it just like an all-consuming uh, sort of animation practice? I think it's all-consuming <laughs> animation <laughs> practice. I, I, I don't know, I, I'm a really like, like boring, person outside of animation it's a uh, I don't know just yeah I don't think it's a uh, it's a good thing but yeah well I mean you also mentioned your sketchbook and I'm curious what maybe that process looks like as well if you go in and do sketches or drawings just for the sake of doing drawings without animation or if you're always doing the drawings in that sketchbook for animating at a later date as well yeah i'm doing it for animation <laughs> okay cool it's all Very in cool. service for the craft no that's amazing honestly <laughs> very admirable as an animator um you know doing everything and giving everything you've got toward your animation and it absolutely shows in your work as well um i guess to end on um if Kohana, you don't have any other questions for the time being, um, we've been just asking the people that we've been interviewing um, if they could give one or two pieces of advice to aspiring animators or filmmakers, or maybe even a younger version of yourself when you started animating, um, what would that be? Um, it's difficult because I, I love doing animation, but at the same time, it's uh it's been so hard for me to to continue animation, uh, even though I decided what I like. I do animation by myself, and I enjoy doing it. But I don't know. Don't be an animator. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love yeah. what I do. <laughs> I think we all have to um, be a little self-deprecating to want to be animators in the first place. I guess with that, yeah, those were those are all of our guiding questions um, for the conversation. But thank you so much for just taking the time to be here and and talk to us in the first place and pull oh, back the curtain a little bit. Me. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much, Serena. Like it's been such an absolute joy getting to speak with you and. Kohana and I are both such huge fans of your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back.
up as a bench warmer, Nick Catrimbone learned how to celebrate people from a young age. Producing for artists such as Carly Ann Tamara, Rodney Chrome, and June is Over, Catrimbone has developed a sound he calls democratic disco. He has a passion for telling stories that have not been told before. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Boiled Over. We have a bunch more interviews coming up that we're really excited to be sharing with you all. And with that, we'll see you next time on Boiled Boiled Over. Over.